Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hello, podcast listeners. I am Bill A. Jones, the narrator of Death by Podcasting, a novella written by Sarah Archer and Landis Wade and published by Charlotte Readers Podcast, LLC. I would like to invite you to experience Death by Podcasting. It's available in print, ebook, and <laughs> my personal favorite, audiobook, wherever books are sold. And here's the bonus. When you buy Death by Podcasting, you support Charlotte Reader's Podcast, and you learn how dangerous it can be to podcast with authors. Here's a taste of the story. Podcast co-hosts Raspy Fuse and Salty Remarks receive an anonymous text. One of the three author guests you plan to interview Tuesday night intends to kill you both. At first, the co-hosts think the text is a joke. Why would egotistical poet William Z. Wisp, sexy romance author Della Molasses, or tightly wound thriller writer Edwin Nocturne want to kill them? Raspy and Salty have never met the scribblers. The co-hosts approach their killer interviews as a fun adventure until they learn another literary podcaster died mysteriously when she interviewed the authors. And a psychologist specializing in writer therapy has been treating the writers for mental health issues. Worse yet, the co-hosts discover suspicious ties between the authors and disgruntled members of their own podcast team, doubling the suspect list. Raspy and Salty decide to tap into their experience reading and writing mysteries to identify their would-be murderer and unravel the plot before it's too late. If they can't, their sense of humor and wordplay will be all they have left to avoid death by podcasting. To learn more about Sarah Archer's writing, check out saraharcherwrites.com. To learn more about Landis Wade's writing, check out landiswade.com. For all things Charlotte Reader's Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. Happy reading and listening. And oh, if you ever decide to podcast with authors, be careful out there. Hey listeners, in this episode 370, just in time for Christmas, we feature thriller author Ryan Steck, founder of the Real Book Spy website and his recent holiday-themed action novella, Red Christmas, which I think has the feel of a die-hard holiday story. Ryan's work has been endorsed by number one New York Times bestselling authors Jack Carr, C.J. Box, Mark Greeny, Kyle Mills, James Rollins, Nelson DeMille, and others. And he recently signed a two-book deal with Berkeley and imprint of Penguin Random House to continue the late Ted Bell's New York Times bestselling Lord Alexander Hawk series, which he will write while he continues writing his own Matthew Red series. Not sure how he's going to do all that. We we talk about that. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, congratulations on the publication of Red Christmas. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. It was yeah. uh, it was really fun to write. To be honest with you, I never planned I never planned to write a novella. Um, I thought the the story for that one was better not as a novel. I didn't think it was a feel good hundred thousand word story. So I went to my publisher and said, "Would you guys mind if I if I wrote a novella?" 
And the name was there, right? Like Matthew <laughs> Red. The name was there. So I said, you know, can I do it? And they said, what do you have in mind? And I, and I pitched it to them, and they went for it. And uh, it was a lot of fun to write. That's great. We're going to talk about that just a little bit here. Before we do, and before we talk about Christmas and this uh, Christmas-themed thriller, let's talk for a few minutes about you and uh, your path here. You've got this uh, website called The Real Book Spy website. I'd like to know, uh, I'd like to introduce our listeners if they hadn't heard about it to that. And just tell us how it got started and why you did it and how it's different than other sites like it. You know, I, man, it's been uh, about 10 years ago, I started the real And when I did it at the time, I was transitioning from being a, a failed sports writer, essentially. Um, I started out as a sports writer and felt like I was really struggling to write at times and then found out as a, as a young adult, I'm really dyslexic and just was totally not, it was missed, wasn't diagnosed as a child. And, um, my, my doctor at the time said, Hey, just start reading, just read a lot and it will get better. And so, um, I actually went home and I Googled dyslexic authors. I thought, let's just see, you know, who can actually write that's dyslexic. You know, that's where I'm trying to get back to my career. And the name that came up was an author, uh, Vince Flynn of the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Mitch Rapp series. So I didn't, I didn't read the book right away, but a couple of days later, maybe a week or two, um, it was breaking news that Vince had passed away. And I was like, oh man, I just heard about this guy. So I downloaded uh, his first book, uh, chronologically speaking, in the Mitch Rapp series. I got American Assassin. I read it that night. And by the end of the night, had bought every book he'd ever written. And I was hooked. And so I was like, you know, I, I want to read more. I finally have something to read. But when you're when you're a sports writer and you're watching the game unfold, you're writing your 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 game story as the action is happening. So in my mind, I needed to be taking notes. I need to be writing as I'm reading this Mitch Rapp series. And what what followed um, was I had probably like a couple hundred legal pads worth of notes. And I just looked like this crazy fan that had all this information. And I remember my wife one day was like, what on earth are you going to do with that? And I said, I don't know. And she was like, you should put it on the internet, like make a fan site if you want to practice writing. Ended up being the best advice I ever got. Um, because Kyle Mills, who's a dear friend of mine now, uh, took over the Mitch Rapp series. And he's like really detailed with like his notes, his outlines and everything. And so when he signed on, I know he had said to the publisher, to Simon and Schuster, like, send me everything you have on the series. Vince was the opposite. He didn't take notes, didn't have all this stuff. And uh, basically, Simon and Schuster said, look, he didn't leave anything, but we know a guy. So they put me in touch with him. And that's about the time I realized I wanted to transition into publishing. I wanted to start as a critic, writing reviews and <clears throat> interviewing authors. But I was hearing from the authors all the time, like, there's no one-stop shop for all things thriller. There's just not. Like, um, in, in, in the publishing world, thrillers are treated like the redheaded stepchild, almost like in the film world. I've never, every year the Oscars are on and they show like Best Picture Award. I've never seen any of those movies, ever. I've seen every billion-dollar franchise that is really fun, that makes good money, that gets people to theaters. I've never seen the movies that win the, you know, the awards. And thrillers are kind of the same way. So... It was authors like uh, like Kyle Mills and Ted Bell and and so many others that were like, you should create a site. And I got thinking about it one day and I was like, man, maybe they're right. So I launched The Real Book Spy. It was 10 years ago and um, it grew really quickly. I think at the time there wasn't anything quite like it. And so it, it really took off. My 
my whole focus was to treat it like I would cover an NFL team, you know? So not just do the reviews, but I want to interview. I want to interview the authors like I would players. I want to announce book deals. I want to announce books. I want to reveal covers. I want to really treat this like, like I felt like the industry hadn't yet. And so got all into that, took off quickly. Today, we have 2 million readers uh, yearly average and just sort of launched like a spinoff podcast on Twitch to go with it. And it's been a heck of a ride, man. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that's great. Listeners, um, I've been poking around on the website. There's a lot of good content there. If you love thrillers like I do, you can just kind of get lost in there. And there's some good blogs and everything. And 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 uh, you mentioned uh, something, Ryan, about how um, there was this sort of intersection between wanting to read these great. I've read the Mitch Rapp series, too. I got I got hooked on those on my, on my Kindle and just read them one after the other. But uh, you talked about how you were thinking about wanting to be a writer as well. Did doing this project, uh, um, sounds like it had some added benefits of helping you become a better writer, but also connecting you with a network of really good authors, you know? Yeah. You know, um, I was writing reviews at the time and then I started editing and I, I still, to this day, although not as much as I used to, I will, if there's a project that really intrigues me, but I worked as a freelance editor for a long time now. And one of my clients was Ted Bell. I worked with him for a while, well, for a long time. So, yeah, he and I were very close. And that's why yesterday's, or you know, if it wasn't for me, I mean, I signed this deal a, a while ago. We just couldn't announce it right away. You know how those things are in the industry. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's why that news, the recent news was so fun for me because uh, I worked with Ted for a long time. So not only was I a critic, I was an editor. And I got to work with a lot of talented authors, which was really fun. I still enjoy that. I, I enjoy the creative process. Um, but yeah, I really reached a point where it's like, man, you read books and sometimes you're like, would have been really cool if this would have happened or I'll be editing. And I would say, you know, it'd be really cool as if this happened, not everyone takes your suggestions. Right. So I got to the point where I just kind of like one day thought, I just want to write a book the way I want to write it. I love, I love Vince Flynn. I love CJ box. What would it look like if those words, like those two Mitch Rapp, Joe Pickett worlds just merged. And I said that to my agent one day. And uh, I'll never forget. I said, like, I think I'm going to write a book. It's going to be Vince Flynn meets CJ Box. And he kind of sighed and said, what's that look like? And I was like, I don't, give me a year. Let's find out. And um, and the rest is kind of history. I wrote Fields of Fire and um, launched my career as a novelist. And, and now I'll be continuing that series. But I'll also be taking over uh, Ted Bell's Alex Hawk series, which is very near and dear uh, to me. So I think to answer your question, yeah, I think um, being an editor made me a better critic and being a critic made me a better editor and both, I would hope, make me a better writer. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you mentioned several names. We've had C.J. Box on the show several times. I love his books as well. Uh, and another name, which I was scrolling around your website, found you did a little blog post recently about what what Googled word collection or phrase helps you find your site. And you were surprised to find it was... Craig Johnson Longmire. I'm, I'm a big fan of Craig Johnson Longmire series. Why do you think uh, Longmire fans uh, find your site? <laughs> I, here's the deal, man. I love Craig Johnson too. I'm a big fan. CJ Box is my favorite living author. He's right there, one A, one B with Vince Flynn. Those those guys to me, I mean, they walk on water in the in the publishing world. Uh, I really like Craig Johnson, but if you'd have gave me a million guesses on what terms would have led people, what term was the most 
Googled phrase that led people to the books by in the last 10 years. I don't think I ever would have guessed that. I really don't. Uh, we tend to cover more action, more political type thrillers, suspense, um, military thrillers, you know, things of, of those nature, spy thrillers. I guess I just never, and I never even had access until recently, by the way, I finally got like access to some things um, with a new site editor on the real books by, and I, you know, they came to me and said, do you know what the, like the most Google thing? And I said, I have no clue. And so I put it in the blog post because that's been, a, look, the, the hard part of, in all this for me has been to step out from behind the real books by shadow and let people meet me as, as, as the author, you know, a different a different hat to wear, so to speak. And so the blog posts are fun because I get to do those as me, not as a book spy. But um, I have no, I wish I knew, here's, here's the deal. If I knew the answer to that question, <laughs> I'd be amplifying it to get even more traffic our way, but I don't have a clue. Isn't that funny? It is funny. Well, um, look, uh, listeners, uh, I hope this episode is going to get you salivating for more uh, of Ryan's work because I really enjoyed uh, this book, Red Christmas. Um Let's let's talk about the book uh, a little bit here. It opens up with memories of childhood Christmas when Matthew Red's mother dies. His, his distant father comes in, sends him out to Montana to live with Jim Bob Thompson. Love that name. Who Matt calls JB, and he and JB form this Christmas tradition of watching Christmas movies, not the cartoons, not Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, not *A Wonderful Life*, because I think JB somebody didn't like the suicide angle. But yes, a Christmas story, one of my favorites too. And then Matthew discovers Die Hard, but JB said it was no more of a Christmas movie than It's a Wonderful Life. So let's talk favorite Christmas movies just a minute and some of these titles that you put in here. Do you have any favorite Christmas movies? I do. Uh, it's a big tradition in my house. So I, my wife and I, we have six kids. So we do a different Christmas movie every night of December leading up to Christmas. And so... Uh, we do like a, my, my kids call it like, you know, the Steck family, 25 nights of Christmas and we make a schedule. We do the whole thing. But the last couple of years, the schedule has gone right out the window and uh, my kids want to watch Deck the Halls every night. That's got uh, Matthew Broderick and uh, Danny DeVito in it. And it it's kind of like no offense to them. It's kind of a lame Christmas movie. <laughs> I don't think it would top the charts for, you know, most popular Christmas movies out there. But in my house, it's huge. So. It's got so much sentimental value and, and good memories for me. That's my favorite. But um, I like Die Hard. You know, I think that's a good one. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about whether Die Hard is or is not a Christmas movie or, or not. It's, it's clearly, and, and it's in the vein of what you've done here, which I love. But, uh, you know, yeah, we've got Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. We've got the classic, uh, you know, A Christmas Story. Um, and uh, it is it is a fun tradition to to watch these Christmas movies at this time of year, you know, before for the big day, but you took this um, story um, of a Marine, a uh, young kid who wants to become a Marine, and you've turned it into this uh, novella. You also had some other movie references in the opening. He, he's going to go join the Marines, uh, and uh, he's worried about uh, JB, his, his dad, and the ranch, uh, because he lives on a ranch, And but JB won't let him give up his dreams. He says, like George Bailey, he said, and it's a wonderful life, you shouldn't give up your dreams for me. And, and I was wondering if that was a thought that was running through your mind as you, as you wrote that scene, you know, someone giving up or postponing their dreams uh, to, to either support someone else or, or to take care of the family or whatever. Yeah. It's near and dear to me. Um, <clears throat> I think it, it, it's, um, it's the kind of thing that comes from conversations with my children. So my first three kids are adopted. I was actually told I couldn't have kids. 
uh, at one point. And then that doctor turned out to be really wrong because we adopted three kids. And then my wife and I, we had three more. Um, it's the kind of thing that um, I think parenting discussions lead to, right? Like with your children and, and, and even, I think the dynamic between parents and children so changes once you're grown. You know, when I started having kids and became an adult, my relationship with my parents got so much better. And you look back and you realize where your parents sacrificed to help advance your life. And um, it's so near and dear. When I sat down to write this novella, by the way, uh, things are really crazy in my in my house. My wife this year has been such a challenge. She had major health issues. I'm trying to write, you know, two books this year and all this other stuff. My dad retired and he wasn't going to retire yet. I mean, he had been thinking about it. He maybe was going to go another year or two. It was literally as simple as Ryan needs me. I'm done. I'm retired. I'll be there every day. And I really, I mean, that was so moving to me. So I, I, to me, this novella, yes. I mean, that part is, is things like that come from these discussions. I put a lot of emotion into my writing, probably in a way a lot of people don't expect. I, I like to be the guy that laughs and jokes around and has fun. I think the deeper feelings and thoughts come out in my writing. And if you know to look for it, uh, you can maybe find it. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. Oh, you got a lot of stuff in here we're going to talk about, uh, but JB... Uh, Matt's dad, he says you should take the tree down on December 26th because Christmas is over. It's no reason to leave it, up, leave it up there any longer. When does your family take the tree down? December 26th. <laughs> we, we, uh, yeah, we take it down pretty quickly now. I mean, so when you have six kids and they're all getting presents, they need more room to play. Uh, every inch matters. So we get the tree down pretty quickly. But I will say we put it up really early. Uh, my kids started a tradition. Now, they haven't done it this year, but normally they put it up like the day after Halloween. They're like, dad's got to go up. They like to celebrate it all year. Um, so we didn't let them do it this year. But yeah, once Christmas is, the earlier I think you put it up, the more acceptable it is to take it down right away. You know? Any other favorite Christmas tradition since we're here on, on the Christmas season? Um, yeah, my family does a lot. <clears throat> we, um, in my neighborhood, we got some, uh, some dirty looks one time because we went so big on the lights outside the house and all the blow up inflatable stuff and, and yard stuff. And not all the neighbors, I think, loved it. And that made my kids and they must get this from me. I don't know. But uh, that made them want to go bigger, <laughs> you know. And so <clears throat> there's neighbors that do love it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I think some of them are like really already like it's like November 1st and you're going to deck the house out. And this this may have a lot to do with their favorite Christmas movie being deck the halls. But we go big every single year. And uh, my oldest daughter. Um, who's 20 now in her twenties now she climbs a ladder all the way up. Like, like I don't even get up there at the peak of our house. I mean, it's, it's really high and she'll go all the way up to string lights and my kids are all about it. And we get the inflatables and the yard stuff and we go pretty big. We do, uh, we decorate the cookies like everybody. And, and my wife is pretty good about setting up, you know, things like that for the kids. And I, I really just finish writing and come on down and it's always a surprise for me. I'm like, Oh man, it's cookie night, you know, um, let's start decorating. So now my, my wife does a good job making that really special and my kids love it. 
Well, that that kind of describes one of my favorite Christmas movies, which is National Lampoon Christmas Vacation. I think I get cite mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the lines from that movie, but we won't won't go there right now. Just go plug it in, folks. All right, so a little setup on the story here. It's northern Iraq. It's December 24th, 2015. I love the fact that there's a clock component here, that the clock is ticking on this. Um, and, and to set this up, um, we have this deadline because uh, Matt has left home. He's gone into the military. He's in the Marines. He's left his dad behind, JB behind. He's left his girl, Emily. He's gone off to college. He's left his best friend. And he's out there um, in Iraq. He gets this mission and he has to go outside the wire. And he's got to figure out a way uh, to keep the promise that he made to JB that he's going to call him every year on Christmas Eve to wish him a, a Merry Christmas. And he's not sure now whether he can because, of course, he's got this mission. And, and this deadline of this uh, annual Christmas call against the tension of this rescue operation with opposing enemy forces, I think is a great way to drive the story. And I was wondering, uh, was this a particular, was there some particular inspiration for coming up with that narrative or were you just looking for a way to keep that ticking clock moving on this particular story? No, you know, it's, it's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, This whole novella idea came from the last, the last scene of the book. So I won't give it away. Don't don't give it away. It's it's the hardest thing I've ever written because it was the first time I think I've ever cried writing something. Um, I wanted to show the bond of father and son. That's so important to me as a father, as a son. And so I had this idea in my head of like, I want to write a story where you get to see how this 18 year old kid becomes the man we meet in fields of fire. So when my series kicks off in fields of fire and lethal range and out for blood comes out, June 4th, 2024, I really wanted to go back and explore how do you become that battle-tested, hardened operator? And in the midst of that, I wanted to show Red with Jim Bob. Um, In Fields of Fire, that's the reason Red comes back to Montana for the first time in a decade, is the death of Jim Bob. And I heard from readers, I mean, so many readers along the way, that Jim Bob was their favorite character. And I thought, how's that possible? He's dead from, like, the first page. Like, and... But they felt like his presence was so part of Fields of Fire that it kind of like made me want to go back and put them on the page together. So I had that final scene in my head. The rest was, all right, what would happen to lead to that moment? And that's where I really had to go back and think. And I wanted to show, portray it in a way that for Red, and I think this is true for us in life in, in a variety of scenarios, when you're trying to get through something really difficult, there's often one thing that you'll hold on to. Right. And that becomes your your motivation, so to speak. And I think for Red, he's going through all this stuff. It goes from bad to worse to much worse to awful to tragic. And it's like the thing that he focuses on is not what he's going through right now. It's I got to get back to call my dad. I promised him. And it becomes the thing that fuels him to get through all the terrible stuff happening. And so that's that's really how it came about. I had the ending first and then I thought, well, what would what would it take to get him to this point? And I had to go back and think of the rest. Well, we sometimes talk, and I've got some writing questions later, but this is a good place to drop this in. But this idea of writing a uh, a prequel to a successful uh, book seems like a good idea, not just because it would be fun to do, but because it's a good marketing deal as well. I mean, the, if you've got a character that people love, uh, why not do this? Was that partly in your mind? It'd be, it'd be shorter than having to deal with a full-blown novel, but it'd be a fun way to get uh, some information out there about your character? You know, I wish I was like that savvy at marketing. Um, 
Because when you say it, it sounds great. I mean, it really does. No, I, it really was. I had that scene in my head and I knew I had to write it. And I thought, well, I can't do that because it doesn't work now in, in my series. So I'd have to go back in time to do it. And then I really thought if to do this right, it's going to be it's going to be raw and real. I want to show really what it would be like. I talked to so many you know, veterans and servicemen and women. What is it really like in combat for your first time? You know, when you have to see death and experience that. And so I think to an extent, I just knew that doesn't make a good 100,000 word story. That's your typical novel. So for me, I thought, you know, let's do maybe a quarter of that. It ended up being about a third. Um, it's a pretty long novella, actually. It's, it's 30,000 words. And um, I just didn't think it had the kind of message to go a full length novel. I, on my novels, I want to take you for a ride. And I want the ups and the downs and the ebbs and the flow of the story to really grip you. And then, you know, I, I want to invoke emotion and all that. But at the end, I do want a good feeling at the end. Um, this is the hardest thing I wrote. So far, the feedback's been really good. And that means a lot to me from readers. But I didn't think it fit what I normally do with the novel. So I thought it could only function as a novella. And then then it was really all about would the publisher let me do it. And um, they said yes immediately. So that, you know, just came together. Well, you, you talked about, um, I mean, there's, there's violence in here, obviously, because it's realistic. Um, there is an arc to this story. Um, he's got these challenges along the way, but he meets people. And yet, even though this is a, a, a Christmas story and has a, a feel-good ending in part, I wouldn't say feel-good as much as it, it, it feels right, you know, so much uh, the ending does. But there is some emotion tied to it. But we lose people that he gets close to along this mission, too. And I'm just wondering... How do you balance that? Because you deal with some pretty heavy stuff, and yet you're also trying to tug at the emotions uh, that involve family as well. Um, yeah, it's a difficult line to walk. I'm not. I wasn't sure I did it, you know, until we started getting reader reaction. That's always the most terrifying thing for a writer. You think you did what you set out to do, but there's no way to know until you start seeing the reviews and the feedback. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it came out um, when it when it dropped at 1201 a.m. I was like, here we go. You know, let's see if people let's see if people get it. Um, I've been I've been really pleasantly surprised that I think the message without spoiling it, you know, was 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 well received. Um, but, yeah, it's I think even for a novella, a story has to take you through many waves of emotions. I think that's what that's what makes one, you know, good and successful. If it can make you laugh and make you sad and then, you know, make you want to go run through a wall to join this person. You know, I think there's so many things that if writers, if we do our jobs correctly, you'll feel a lot as you go. And I, and, and look, this is the circle way back. I ultimately do think that's why so many books by followers love Craig Johnson and readers like that. Other, other uh, writers who are so good at doing those things. Yeah. Well, I've got some more questions. Cause I want to ask you about some of the quotes in the book, which I found uh, very interesting and, and fun at different times. But we've got a little reading you're going to do. Um, you want to set up where you are in the book for this, and then just whenever you're ready, just just take it away. So I thought a lot about, like, what excerpt would I read? Um, this is my first novella. I never thought I would do one. So I'm going to read chapter two because it's the only time I've ever written in first person. So the whole story is in third person point of view, except for chapter two. And I, I never planned that. So you have chapter one, which uh, we've talked a lot about. Uh, Red is with Jim Bob in Montana, and he promises them no matter what, like I'll always call you on Christmas Eve. When I typed chapter two, 
it just came out in first person. And I thought, whoa, <clears throat> that was weird. I know I've had red inside me for years. Now he wants to talk. And it was like this character was like, let me let me tell this part. OK, um, forget the nameless, faceless third person narrator. I want to tell the readers this directly. Now, I will just say um, it's short. There's a lot in here that if you can get your your uh, your magnifying glass out and track the clues, it really sets up future books, future events in the books, stuff that I think you could skip right over. And then books down the road, you're going to be able to come back to this and go, whoa, like that was pointed right here. <clears throat> so much of this. So uh, the cool thing for me is I know readers don't know how to decipher that yet. Um, I know what it is, but um, they don't. So that makes it fun. So I'll, I'll read to you. This is chapter two of Red Christmas. This is from Matthew Red's first person point of view. <clears throat> that was the last Christmas Eve I ever got to spend on the ranch with JB. And man, it was a good memory to look back on. I was devastated that Emily had left. Mikey, who before a temporary falling out was my best friend, one of my only friends, was with his mom visiting family up in Wyoming at the time. So it really was just me, JB, and the cattle, but we made the best of it. Back then, we had some Christmas traditions, but the holiday itself didn't mean quite what it does to me today. Now, me and Em work hard to get the real message of Christmas across to the kids. Her dad usually leads a Christmas Eve service at church, and then we spend time as a family. It's less about the gifts, though, I will admit. The best gift I ever received once showed up on Christmas Eve delivered by a man who I had no relationship with when I was 18, sealed inside a manila envelope. But more on that some other day. Back to the presents. JB was a simple man, which is one of the many reasons we got along so well. It never did take too much to make him happy. And that year, don't laugh, all I got him was some AA batteries and a can of Folgers. JB had a little transitor radio he liked to carry when he was working the ranch. Sometimes he'd dial up a station to hear a little Johnny Cash or some George Strait. He also loved Randy Travis, but mostly used the radio for weather reports. You get caught out in a winter storm in Montana unprepared, and, well, you'll end up dead real quick. Take it from me. I know all too well about that. Not long after I mixed it up with some bikers that attacked my wife and son on the road, I found myself in an even worse situation. I'll spare you the details, but basically, a bunch of goons who were out for blood followed me up a mountain in the middle of a blizzard, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life. Who knows? Maybe I'll tell that story one day. But I remember that promise to JB like it was yesterday. To be honest with you, I never imagined then, when I was just an 18-year-old kid, how difficult it would be to keep. Maybe you were smart enough to have seen it right away. How can someone give their word that, no matter what, they'll always call a loved one at a certain time once a year? But I'll tell you what, I always fought to keep it. Anyways, the point here is that I'd give anything to go back and have one more Christmas Eve on the ranch with my dad. I didn't know... That would be the last one. But even if I did, I can't think of anything I would have changed. We had a big dinner, got up early and tended to the herd, and came in and exchanged gifts. JB got me ammo. What else? That and beef jerky. Two can't-miss items any cowboy would be thrilled with. So yeah, a memorable, if low-key, Christmas. And after that, I spoke to JB every year like clockwork. Never missed once. But there was a time I almost did. Almost. Yeah, I love that. The way that set up this whole novella uh, because he gets called outside the wire. And um, this is also a book um, uh, and it's a prequel to your other books, which I look forward to reading, uh, which sets up the character of, of Matthew Red. Um, he has to undergo this uh, transition from being uh, 
a follower to a leader in this book, right? Yeah, and that and that does that take itself forward in these in these novels? I mean, he becomes the person who leads men into battle after this. Yeah, I mean a little bit. Um, I think the readers that have have followed along from book one on know that Red is kind of a lone wolf operator. There's times he leads men, but if given the opportunity, he'd rather go alone. And I think now you understand why. Mm-hmm. You know, he, I don't. He does not take lightly to um, leading men in, into battle, knowing something could happen to them if he can't control the situation. And hey, on the battlefield, like he learns in this this story, I mean, you can't control anything. And so, um, I, yes, to an extent, but I think more than anything, when you read this book and then you read the uh, you read this novella and then you read the actual books, you'll understand a lot more about why Red is the way that he is. We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them, and when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. All right, so which came first? All these quotes that you dropped in, which were just fun little nuggets in here, or did you go back in and drop those in? later did you do it no i yeah they just they just come to me as i'm writing it um i don't ever really go back to drop stuff in i i wish i wish i could um but no usually as i'm writing i get inspired and things will kind of hit me and i'll drop them in as we go well there's this one scene where they're sort of pinned down and uh red wonders whether we're going to get their way out of it uh he thinks well should i give the men some kind of inspirational quote like from chester chesty puller where he says all right, they're on our left, they're on our right, they're in front of us, they're behind us. They can't get away from us this time. He chose not to do that. But you've got quotes in here from Colin Powell, uh, James Mattis, uh, George Patton. Um, I think Powell said no battle plan ever survives the first encounter with the enemy. And James Mattis said Marines don't know how to spell the word defeat. And George Patton said when in doubt, attack. And these are all themes that fit well into what you're writing, correct? Yeah, I mean they really do. Um the the Colin Powell one was was more elegant than um I think uh the rift on that was from Mike Tyson later said everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. Um <laughs> uh, yeah, they do fit. You know, and then the other thing is I always really do try to layer things. So, if I can use a quote from a, like a marine, I'm definitely gonna because that's red. Um he he has this identity especially in this book and then in Fields of Fire, he his whole identity is as a marine. It's not until book two and three and i just turned in book four that he starts to kind of shed that identity as he realizes he's becoming something else and growing into his new role which i don't want to spoil but but yeah well i could also see in some of the quotes that you're just pulling on your love of christmas uh there was a saying not a creature was stirring he thought uh mordantly silent night is right heck of a way to spend christmas eve so they're out there in this uh, battlefield on christmas eve and how often is that the case from what you know about uh, Matt, you know, these conflicts around the world? Oh, I think it's fairly common. <clears throat> you know, um, one of the things that um, a lot of people stressed to me when I went to them to do my research to write this, you know, I needed to understand. <clears throat> and um, in fact, I, so I said, I said to one of my good friends who's uh, a best-selling author, I won't name them because, um, because of what they said, it was off the record, but uh, they're a really well-known author. And I said to them, hey, can, like, can these guys cry? 
Like if they go through a lot, like, or is that not, do we not show that? Like if they're supposed to be this big, this badass operator, is that off limits? And he said, I think that'd be the most accurate thing you could possibly show. And then they went on to explain to me, you know, when you look back on like even combat, what's crazy is how everything is normal right up until you go, right? Like it's just normal day. You wake up, everything's the same. And then you go to this comp. And then even when you get back, things are supposed to go right back to the way that they were. And that's a really tough thing. Um, for for young and that's the other thing you have to keep perspective on these are these are kids i mean i know they don't want to be called that if they're 18 i mean they're 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 men but 18 years old i mean when you really think about it i've got a daughter who's you know 20 and i don't think of her as grown or an adult and so yeah i i I just wanted to show the full range of that but the the one thing i think everyone i talked to said is you know you wake up you don't know you're going into combat that day it is just a normal day until it's not Mm -hmm. and that was always so wild to me all right, a couple of writing life questions. We do this in our uh, toward the end of our uh, episode. Uh, I was going to ask you, um, you know, Ryan, how you uh, do the books by website and do all this writing, but now we're going to add another element to it because not only are you doing your your own books, but you've recently signed this deal uh, to take on the late Ted Bell's New York Times bestselling Lord Alexander Hawk series. Um, how many do you have like a 48 hour day that you operate on or what's yeah, the key is you just don't sleep. Um, that's, the, <laughs> yeah, that's the key. Um, no, I mean, big, a big shout out goes to my wife. You know, I've done, uh, uh, several interviews lately and they're like, how do you do all that? How do you manage all that? And I'm like, it's not, I'm up here in my office. Like it's peace and quiet and I'm working. My wife is downstairs with six kids right now. Like mm-hmm. she's got the tough job. Um, she sends me up to write and, uh, no, I mean, I try to be pretty focused. I will tell you one thing for me is I cannot sit down and create. So my friend, Joe Rosenberg, another really good author, New York Times bestseller, he says that when you open a blank Microsoft Word document, there's just that blinking cursor and they call it a cursor because you feel cursed. You know, you don't know what to write. And I was like, man, that speaks to me so much. If I have to sit down and create, I don't think I write well. So what I do is I get up early I like to get up around like five, sometimes six o'clock. I go to Starbucks. That's my only time out of the house on a normal day. I drive to Starbucks. I listen to, a, I start a playlist <clears throat> with each new book. And then every morning I, I listen to those same songs. It helps get me back into the, the routine, the mindset I was in yesterday. And I listen to that as I'm writing, by the way. So I go to Starbucks, then I come home and I start thinking and I'll pace around my office or I'll write emails. I'll work on the books by, and I try to do a chapter a day. And I think about that chapter over and over and over again until I get it to where I like it. And I can see it like a movie in my head. And once I have it in my head, I can write it. That's when I can finally sit down and write. So I would say uh, when I'm writing a Matthew Red book, I will think for hours and then sit down and write for like two and a half, three hours. And I have my chapter and I'm done. Now, Alex Hawk is a little bit of a different deal. Um, he doesn't live inside. He doesn't live in my head. Though. He doesn't live in your head, and you're going to have to take that over. Talk about yeah. the uh, pressures of that and also how you're going to do it. It's uh, Look, the pressure that I feel is um, because I so love Ted. Um, <clears throat> when he passed away in January, I had to lock myself in my office so my kids wouldn't worry, and I, I, I sobbed like a child. I mean, it was so hard for me. Um, he and I were very close. He was a mentor to me. I worked with him behind the scenes for about a decade. And so it was a, it was a big loss. And to think, man, not only do I not have Ted, I don't have Alex Hawk anymore. That was a real blow. When the opportunity came up, my agent had called, we, we shared an agent and he said, 
hey, you know, if they if they continue this, like, you know, are you going to want to be involved? And honestly, I thought he meant like would I be an editor and work with whatever author they got. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to, whoever they get, you know, I want to work with it, you know, work with them. And, and he was like, no, 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 no. Like, do you want to write it? And I was like, oh, oh man. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I, yes, I hadn't even crossed my mind. And so the funny thing is I knew Ted a, a decade plus. We were very close. He did so much for me. But if I knew I'd one day be taking that series over, I would have asked a lot of different questions. Okay. Um, he published his last book in 2021. It's called Seahawk. And there's some things at the end there that I didn't quite understand. And I said to him, you know, it's interesting that you gave Alex Hawk his happy ever, you know, happily ever after ending. And he goes, oh, you really think that? And I was like, oh, yeah. And he goes, no, you don't know how bad I wish I could go back now and go, what, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> what, what are you going to do there, Ted? Um, I'd give anything to ask him that question. Uh, I can't. But um, <clears throat> The pressure I feel is because I loved him so much. I want to get it right for him. And more importantly now is, is his daughter. Uh, her name is Birdie, Birdie Bell. She's so wonderful. She's become a really dear friend uh, to me. Um, it's been a really therapeutic relationship. I feel like I didn't lose Ted because Birdie is, is so much like him. Um, and she trusted this to me. You know, that was it was her decision. And Penguins and, and Tom Colgan, the editor there, has worked with so many talented writers. That when people came and said that, you know, hey, Ryan, we really want you to do this. I feel the pressure of I don't want to let them down. Mm. You know, I want to nail it and I've got to get it right for, for Ted. So I'll write a chapter that I think is a pretty good Ryan Steck chapter. And then I'll reread it. And I'm like, this is not a good enough Ted Bell chapter. So um, several times recently, I, I put in 18 hour days in my office just on a single chapter. And that's so not normal for, you know, my writing style with, with Matthew Red. I hear him all the time. And I, I told Bertie the other day, I said, you know, when I started this, I didn't hear Hawk at all in my head. And then it became a whisper. And now he's starting to yell at me. So it's getting a lot easier. It's coming a lot, a lot faster. And, um, you know, the difference is Matthew Red is a big former Marine Raider, six foot three and a half, 265 pounds of muscle but he's poor. He's a cattle rancher. Um, I wanted to give him a special weapon one time and the price tag was like $7,000. And I'm like, that might as well be a million for someone like Matthew Red. He can never afford it. How can I get this weapon into his hands? Then you go write Alex Hawk and he's the sixth richest man in England. He's a billionaire. There's nothing he can't have. Um, and so it's, it's two totally different worlds. And Ted's world is over the top and fun and full of action. And it just, it feels good to, you know, be carrying that torch and, and, and in his universe with those characters and, um, you know, advancing his legacy forward. But I do feel the pressure of that. And I think I manage it by, you know, putting in every single hour I can. If the book comes out and people um, think, hey, you know, it's not, it's not quite Ted, you know, whatever. Like, if you don't love it, it won't be because I didn't give you 100% of, of what I got. But that said, um, I know that Penguin has liked it so far. I know that uh, Ted's daughter, Birdie, really liked it so far. And, uh, and I'm pretty excited about it. The first book's called Monarch. And uh, they won't let me talk too much about it yet, but um, it'll come out in spring of 2025, and I'm really excited about it. No, that's great. And, and if you're writing of... Uh, of this series, uh, the Matthew Red series, any indication? I know it's going to be fun. I'll be looking forward to that as well. A um, couple of uh, thoughts here at the end. Um, you are an editor. You've been an editor for a while. You probably self-edit your own work as well. Uh, you've talked about that. 
any number one mistakes uh, you think new writers make when it comes to editing? Um, yeah, actually, yeah. So, so two things. I think a lot of writers write way too fast. They think, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to and even some newer writers I've worked with. And they're like, yeah, I wrote 10,000 words yesterday. And I'm like, really? Because that'd be like a full week's worth of writing for me, maybe more. And they're like, yeah, it's just, you know, the words come to me so quickly. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I, res I respect that to an extent, but I want you to understand there's not an author today sitting on the times list that writes 10,000 words a day. <clears throat> so unless you really think you're just, you're better at it than them. I mean, James Patterson, Stephen King, th they might do quick drafts, but they're not writing 10,000 words a day. So if you really think you can do that, stop. And, and I want you to ask yourself like, well, why does it take them so much longer? And I think the answer is don't just try to be good enough. Don't just put those words down and go, yeah, that's good enough. I'll keep writing. Come back. What is, what is your best sentence look like? Take it just one sentence at a time. Um, the Alex Hawk sentences for me, they'll be a good Ryan Steck sentence. And I can't figure out what's wrong with it. Why doesn't this sound more like Hawk? And I've spent hours and it came down to one word. It was putting one word in that sentence and it fixed everything. So really look at your work. And then when it comes to editing, changes don't always equal better. So you might go, oh, I made all these tweaks and all these changes. That doesn't always mean it's better. You know, really look at your work objectively before you start, you know, making tweaks just to make tweaks and feel like you did something. Really learn to self-analyze and always step away from your work and come back with fresh eyes. Because if you write a book and then immediately try to self-edit, your brain is going to read it the way you think you wrote it as opposed to what's actually there. Yeah, that's good. Good thoughts there. All right, we wrap this up. We usually ask this question to everyone. We're asking you, because you've been at this now for a while. And uh, the question is this, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value based on what you've learned since then, what you know now that you, you wish you could give uh, that advice to your younger writer self, what would it be? That's a good one. It's uh, that's so tough because if you'd have told eighteen-year-old me that I'd be an author someday, <laughs> I would have laughed at you. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't have believed it. But um, yeah, early on, uh, don't be afraid to set up future stories. I think that'd be the advice I'd give myself. Um, I think I held myself back in, in in early drafts of Fields of Fire, afraid to set things up down the road. And and even look, even with, with Red Christmas, I said that one chapter I referenced, one of those really stood out. I, I made a reference to Red saying, you know, this group followed me who they were out for blood. That's a pretty obvious, you know, pointer to uh to book number three, uh available June 4th, and titles out for blood. But we get taught so often as writers, like only focus on this story, make this the best story. Don't think about the next one, just focus on this one. And there's a lot of good advice in that. At the same time, if you wanna have a successful series, I think you've always gotta be thinking in terms of all these books equal one story. It's all one Matthew Red saga for me, right? So there's individual chapters, Fields of Fire and Lethal Range and Out for Blood and even Red Christmas, but it's all one story, it's one person's story. So don't be afraid to set up things for later and make this universe more realistic. Yeah, so just to follow, but I think what you're saying is, uh, you tell me, but don't be afraid to recognize that you might be writing more than one book. <laughs> Go ahead. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's wild because we are. We're taught, think about this book only. And, you know, honestly, one of the biggest things for a lot of writers is <clears throat> being a writer can be stressful. You're always like one book deal away from not being an author anymore, you know? 
if sales go down or something happens and you don't get a renewal. So I think a lot of writers are hesitant to say, all right, let me put stuff in here that will set up other things down the road because I don't have a book deal for that yet. But I also think when when you think of it in terms of this is a saga, this is a series, this is one person's story, you almost will the success a little bit in some in some way. Readers know there's more. They're going to be more excited to get their hands, I, I think, and I'm speaking as a fan and a reader and a critic. I think that makes the, the readers more excited to get the next one. Yeah. You know, I did that uh, with my novel that came out last year, Deadly Declarations, put something in the very end of the book that kind of signaled what our what the protagonist will be dealing with in the next book. And people say, no, no, where's the next book? And I'm like, uh, well, okay, I had to put out these other books. I had to put out this novella. Now I got to get yep. back to it. So yeah, you put them out there, but you got to get back and write them. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I also think when you do that, it forces you to come back and deal with it. You're like, man, I left that thread open. I got to come. I got to come write about that thing now. So yeah. I'm, I know that I've made a commitment when I did that. I just have to make, make time to do it. Well, look, uh, this has been great, uh, Ron. I really enjoyed this uh, today and wish you uh, uh, all the greatest success with uh, this. And uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Well, Merry Christmas to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.